You are listening to Nearly Departed, a ghost story anthology. Every episode stands on its own, but the universe of Nearly Departed will make more sense if you start from the beginning. I make this podcast entirely independently, so please shoot me a rating and a review if you enjoy what I do. Reading them means so much to me. Chapter 6 The Santa Fe Tape Gwen had found the cassette player finally delivered, thick and soft from the bubble-wrap-lined manila folder it was tightly wrapped in on the front porch. She had been stretching her legs on the front porch from spending the morning reading, but when she saw the unmistakable package, she scurried back through the house, through the burgundy living room where she grabbed the cassette case and a blanket, and through the warm orange kitchen where Oscar had spread newspapers over the breakfast table and was painting a birdhouse. Oh, there she goes, he said to himself as Gwen raced out the door from the kitchen into the leaf-strewn yard. But why she's running, no one knows. Gwen walked a ways into their backyard and stopped at the old white oak, almost at the back fence. She leaned at the base and tore the cassette player out of its package. There were already batteries inside. Let's hope they worked. She looked again at the case of cassettes, ten of them. She had finally found Miss Kandinsky's paranormal case files. Actually, her boyfriend Paul had made the discovery. As he was poking around the music room, he had come across a box full of cassettes. Bette Midler's greatest hits, guided meditations, and the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack. He opened another identical box, one of the kind that people in movies use to clean out their offices when they get fired. And while the first box was a chaos of tapes, colorful plastic, and faces, this one was full of cases of neatly organized cassettes, and a squishy leather binder filled with notes. When he saw that the tabs in the notebook said things like the Irish poltergeist and the creature at the lodge, he decided he better get Gwen. Gwen had been holding off reading the notes on the paranormal investigations until she could listen to the corresponding tape, and the time had arrived. August 19th, 1988, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm with Geraldine Fordis, a renowned sculptor and painter and friend. She's going to tell me about the supernatural events that have been going on in her home. So, Jerry, tell me a little bit about the history of the home. Yes, I would love to. So, uh, it was first built in the 1920s by an architect, who planned to live in it with his new family, uh, but they never did move in for some reason. And then it was bought in the 40s by a famous Western actor, Jack Baker. Gwen beamed at the familiar voice of Miss Kandinsky, and her vision went blurry with tears, surprising her. She opened the squishy leather binder and looked for August 19, 1988, and found Miss Kandinsky's notes, under the tab, The Santa Fe Haunting. Jack Baker, she wrote, was a complicated complicated character. He was one of the rare on-screen cowboys who had actually worked at a ranch in Texas as a teenager. 
He participated in small town rodeos and managed to get his photo in the paper in the 30s for winning a bull riding competition. He was captivatingly handsome in the photo, and through dumb luck, it reached the desk of a casting director, and he was put into a western as a younger brother type quite quickly. He leaped at the opportunity. He was living with his grandparents in Dust Bowl, Texas, and there was no real future for farming or ranching for him there. He dyed his light brown hair a richer mahogany to translate better on screen, and he was given acting lessons, though he was a natural. He made a name for himself as he grew into a man by playing golden boys in westerns on screen. He was well liked by everyone, and while studios tried to cast him outside of the western genre, he simply couldn't shake his Texas twang. It also became clear after a few years in Hollywood that he had a serious issue with drinking, but it stayed secret for years. Around this time, at the height of his fame, he bought the Santa Fe Adobe home. But fame did not couple well with whatever triggered his drinking habit, because it slowly began slipping into his work. He was once so intoxicated during a scene that he slid off of his horse and was very nearly trampled. He felt horrible about the delay in production his drinking caused and used his own money to pay the hourly workers who missed out because of it. He would return to set after being forced to dry out for a few days, humble and chipper as ever, but a dark cloud hung over him and he seemed to fall into depression when the doors of his trailer closed. At that time, studios were willing to tolerate it because of his popularity with audiences, but that was about to change. His reputation was permanently soiled in the eyes of studios and the public when it was rumored he was involved in a terrible accident on the set of The Man from Blue Canyon in 1947. Peggy Schneider, a popular young Western actress just getting her start, had been filming a carriage scene with him when apparently Baker lit a cigarette between takes and his discarded match lit Peggy Schneider's many-layered and frilly costume ablaze. It took a while to extinguish the fire, and several cast and crew members sustained burns themselves, getting her out of the carriage and attempting to remove her complex costume. But it wasn't enough, and she died in the hospital the next day. Her parents brought him to court after that, with charges of manslaughter. They couldn't prove that it was actually Jack Baker's match that lit her clothes, and he testified that he had finished his cigarette and snuffed the match minutes before she was caught ablaze in the carriage. But the eyewitness testimony was conflicting. His cigarette butt was found stuck to the bottom of his boot, where he said it was, and lacking solid evidence against him, he was acquitted. But in the public's mind, there was simply no other explanation for how she could have caught ablaze than his carelessness, and the studio released him from his contract. According to his biography, he was never the same after his trial. The biography speculated that his charming persona was his only escape from his demons, whatever they may be. And now that he could no longer retreat into it, he spiraled. He sold his Los Angeles residence and moved full-time into his adobe home in Santa Fe with his wife and daughters. 
He sustained himself for a while by writing Western screenplays, which were well received by his old friends, but, according to his daughter Willa, in 1965, his drinking eventually became out of control, and he died of related illness in 1957. The family left the property, and it changed owners many times for short periods between 1958 and 1970, when my friend Geraldine Fordis purchased the home from an oil magnet. She has occupied the home ever since and started experiencing supernatural events immediately. The first thing I noticed was just the... It just didn't feel like my house. I felt like I was at a hotel or visiting someone or something because no matter how much art I put up or plants or flowers, I felt myself feeling like I had to have permission to do things. In addition to her own feelings of unease, her dog Shep began acting strangely. While he usually slept at the foot of her large bed, Geraldine would wake in the middle of the night to find him sitting alert, facing the door. He would suddenly go alert, often, but she thought he might be hearing animals more closely than their last house, which could be putting him on edge. Geraldine also never felt alone in her studio room. Despite the large, arched windows facing the sun and the gorgeous clusters of agave and cacti framed by the arches, the room always felt cold and her pottery took days longer to dry sufficiently enough to be fired. There was a small room the previous owner had used as an office that Jerry didn't quite know what to do with, and she found herself avoiding it without knowing why. It had inlaid rough wooden shelves on one end and a massive longhorn taxidermy head mounted on the opposite wall, over where a massive desk must have been. But without furniture, the room just looked like a longhorn had burst through the wall and was moments from trampling whoever was inside. Geraldine was determined to take the mounted head down, but to do that, she would have to practically hug its face to reach the base to remove it, so she dawdled. One day, she had received a box of canvases, a very tall, large box, so she decided to leave it in the Longhorn room for temporary storage. I tried not to look at the beast's like dark, glittering eyes and snout as I walked in, but its horns extended practically across the wall and just pointed. So I start talking myself, like trying to talk myself like through the fear. And suddenly, through this stuffy room, the scent of a very old-fashioned aftershave just cuts through the air unmistakably. It broke my fear for a moment, and I look around, but nothing had changed in the room. And then the longhorn just sort of continues to stare at me. Around then is when she started having trouble with the TV. She had brought in a small kitchen television, which she had put on the tile countertop of her kitchen island. It was the only TV in the house. A few mornings every week, she would wake and walk to start her coffee machine and would hear the low hum of the television, which had turned itself on at some point in the night. At this point, I just knew uh, there was a masculine energy in the home, 
and I felt wary of it. I was walking on eggshells a bit. I would just hear things shifting and moving all the time, always at the other end of the house. It was almost like I had a roommate that I just couldn't see. About a month after she moved in, Geraldine was hosting a housewarming party. I was in attendance. The house was fabulous, smooth stucco walls and low lines. Sitting on the back patio couches, you could see the sweeping desert and brush landscape through the Spanish arches. It was fall, and the leaves of the little outbursts of trees were a lemon yellow, contrasting brilliantly with the blue-gray of the sand at night. It was getting quite cold in the evenings now, so she closed the windows and lit a fire for us. We had dinner in the large dining room on an enormous oak table that had been part of a mission door. Conversation turned to Jack Baker, the famous original owner. Not many of them had heard of him, but Geraldine explained his controversies and how she sensed he might be still around. Her friends, other artists and writers suggested we have a seance of sorts and asked if I would lead it. So we moved to the living room where there's a round table near the fire. The fireplace, I should say, is enormous, practically medieval. It's made of the white washed stucco of the walls with the brick lining. I could comfortably get inside of it and be roasted like the witch in Hansel and Gretel if I had wanted to. So we sit at the round, rough wooden table and we place several candles around it. Mescal had been generously poured all evening and we all brought our glasses with us. Geraldine had rushed to the back rooms when we mentioned a seance and she returned with a thick, shiny, polished ember Ouija board. I had never seen anything like it, but like everything fabulous she owns, an artist friend had made it for her a few years ago. So we placed down the Ouija board and put our hands on the smooth amber planchette. I asked Jack's spirit to join us. But I don't feel anything. Just stillness. And the planchette doesn't move. Beyond the twitching of our fingers. We're quiet. Then I start to hear a slight squeaking sound like a rusty gear turning. We look at each other and then up at the brown, heavy metal chandelier above us, which had begun creaking slowly in a circle. We all look at Geraldine to offer a potential explanation, but she shook her head in confusion. So Jack was present. Jack, are you here with us? Oh my god. Look at it. Yes, oh my it god. says yes. Look. Uh, do you like mescal? Watch, watch, Jack? Watch. S C O T C Do you think that means scotch? <gasps> oh, I bet it does. Someone pour him a scotch. Do you have scotch, Jerry? I think so. Then someone asked if he minded that Jerry was living there. Geraldine looked embarrassed that someone would ask that, but we all looked at the shiny board and the planchette moved to spell L-E-N-A. 
None of us knew what to make of that. Then one of our more brash friends said, Did you set your co-star on fire, Jack? And the planchette stopped abruptly. We sat in silence for a while, waiting. And then the heavy, dark chandelier above us started creaking again, this time more aggressively. And we all moved out from under it quite quickly. We spent the rest of the evening on the patio and didn't talk of ghosts. I think we all felt that we had crossed a line. After that, I feel like things really picked up. And I was afraid. One early morning, I was in my studio painting, and out of my periphery, I saw a very tall man walk past my door. I sat down my brushes, and I walked slowly out into the hall and into the living room, but there's nothing there. I had some jewelry go missing as well. A bracelet of mine that I love. It's a thin gold bangle. You've seen my jewelry box and my vanity. You know, all my pieces are right there for me to look at. And one day I look for my gold bangle and it's nowhere to be found. Then one day I had to go back into the office room that I didn't care for to look through some boxes. And I saw something shiny winking at me from the white and red longhorn head dangling from its black snout was my bracelet I slowly approached the mount holding the gaze of its black angry eyes as I just pulled the bracelet from its nose in a split second I saw the shine of the eyes change and saw that there was movement behind me but I couldn't bring myself to break eye contact with the marble eyes I'm irrationally terrified that the thing is just going to gore me if I don't keep my eyes on it at every moment. After this, she began blessing each room, saying a prayer and dabbing the doorways with holy water. This seemed to bring her comfort, but had little effect on the activity. She would still be woken in the night from her dog barking at nothing in her bedroom. She would occasionally smell aftershave and the TV would frequently be on in the morning. But she had locked the office room and wouldn't go back. A while after all of this had become somewhat routine, if not quite spooky, she was taking a nap on her back patio facing the desert. She had been dreaming when she woke with a start at the sound of her dog's growling. Shep had been laying on me on the couches, but when I wake up, he's crouched, teeth bared, snarling, and it takes me a second to see that in the brush, there's a cougar staring back at him. I'm terrified for Shep, and I want to run, but I know that that's the worst thing you can do with wild animals, and I'm trying to get the courage to make myself big, but this cougar is massive, and he's prowling towards us. He could be on either of us in two leaps. Then, suddenly, piercing through the air is the crack of a gunshot. The cougar is spooked, and it slinks back into the desert. She rushes Shep inside and locks the door. I look out from all the windows to identify the neighbor who I owe my life to. But I can't see anyone. There's no one. And I can see for miles in every direction. No one. 
And that's when I realized that the smell of aftershave is incredibly strong in the living room where I'm catching my breath. I really, I think it was, I think it was Jack coming to our rescue a bit. And that really touched me. After that, Geraldine treated the home differently. She began greeting Jack when she would find a television on, and a sort of uneasy friendship began between the unlikely duo of an East Coast lesbian artist and an old Western actor. And to solidify this new, friendly feeling, she found through her own research that one of Jack's daughters was named Magdalena, or Lena for short. And in the biography she read about Jack, she found that Magdalena was a free spirit of sorts, with big curly hair like Jerry. We think in the Ouija sessions, when we asked if he liked living with Geraldine, he said Lena, because perhaps she reminds him of his daughter. What a nice thought. For now, there is no further action needed, and any activity she would previously perceive as malicious, she now sees as the playful hijinks of an old cowboy. That's all for now, Victoria Kandinsky. Gwen carefully put the tape back in its case and zipped up the brown leather binder filled with story after story of Miss Kandinsky's personally collected work. Gwen thought she had been looking for her case files because they would be spooky or interesting or something. But now that she heard one, she knew it was because she wanted to hear Miss Kandinsky's warm voice, captured so young sounding on the tapes. She had been Gwen's adopted grandmother for several years before her passing, and Gwen realized that she would actually do anything to spend another afternoon with her. Miss Kandinsky was eccentric and could be self-centered and moody and impatient but she could also be unendingly generous and kind and warm and wise. Gwen had often been paralyzed by indecision and anxiety and fear, but Miss Kandinsky would take Gwen's round face in her thin, soft olive hands and say, You silly little girl, don't worry. We have coffee and birds and trees, and you are here with me. You've been listening to Nearly Departed, written, produced, and edited by me, Katie Wiggins. If you want some cool merch, head to the link to TeePublic in the episode description. Nearly Departed is in its first season, building up to its finale in the last week of October. If you enjoyed what you heard, again, please review and tell a friend. It feels so good to be able to share my work with you all. Talk to you soon, you little creeps. (laughs) 